Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Is it true that the royals never complain? And is it fact that they never explain? And where did this adage come from in the first place? I'm Jack Royston, Newsweek's royal correspondent. And I'm Kristen Meinzer, a royal watcher based in the U.S. And this is Newsweek's Royal Report. Hello, Jack. Hello, listeners. Hello, Princess Charlotte and everyone else in the castle. In today's episode of The Royal Report, we're going to dive into that old royal adage, never complain, never explain. In layman's terms, don't correct the rumors and don't go crying to the press when royal life feels unfair. Supposedly, it's a rule that the British monarchy lives by, but just where did it come from? And does the firm really stick by it? Yes, well, the quote itself dates back to the 19th century and a former British Prime Minister called Benjamin Disraeli. But in modern times, it really is mainly associated with the royal family. Um, And it goes hand in hand with another famous phrase, another famous quote from a bloke called Walter Bagot, who said, we must not let in daylight upon magic. Um, In other words, let the royals remain mysterious, because if the mystery is lost, then they will be revealed to be fallible and flawed like everybody else in the world. Um, But at its core, Never Complain, Never Explain is about trying to present the monarchy as though they are above the trivial debates that take place in the media about their lives. And particularly where you have gossipy or rumoury type stories, stuff from anonymous sources, that kind of thing, um, there is a feeling that if you respond with an official comment, then that elevates the status of the accusations against the royal family member and kind of makes them stick in people's minds. Yes. And these days, Jack, we hear the never complain, never explain motto marched out a lot, particularly to criticize Meghan and Harry. Those in the anti-Sussex camp regularly accuse the couple of both complaining and explaining ad nauseum all the time, way too much. They need to have some respectability and close their mouths. It began, of course, when Harry issued a statement decrying the racist attacks the tabloid press hurled against his then-girlfriend, Megan. They weren't even engaged yet. And it continued when the couple stepped away from their work as senior royals, when they filed privacy lawsuits, and, of course, when they gave their famous interview to Oprah in spring 2021. But do the Sussexes really complain or explain any more than the rest of the firm does or has in the past, Jack? So I think with something like never complain, never never explain, you can't in the modern world do it all the time. I think there, there is definitely a place for it. And there are also definitely times when Harry and Meghan do adopt this strategy. But all of the royal family have at some point departed from it. Some of those efforts have gone better than others. Um, and one of the really kind of like high profile examples is obviously what was termed at the time the War of the Waleses, um, which ah, was yes. when... Yeah, so this was when Charles and Diana's marriage was disintegrating and um, it all started with a bombshell biography by a man called Andrew Morton 
um, called Diana, Her True Story. And Diana had, it wasn't known at the time, but she had secretly cooperated with Morton and she smuggled out of Kensington Palace all of these audio tapes of her side of this kind of, you know, royal explosion that was happening behind the scenes. And it, she described for the first time, Charles's affair with Camilla. Um, and so that set off a series, a chain of events, and it, it, it included Charles cooperating with his own biographer, um, Jonathan Dimbleby, uh, and also doing a very high-profile BBC interview with Dimbleby in which he spoke about the affair with Camilla on camera for the first time. It is notable that in Prince Charles's biography, he also gave Dimbleby 10,000 diary entries and private letters, including ones to both Di and Camilla. So um, he, he was not holding back at all with Dimbleby any more than Diana was holding back with Morton. They both were complaining and explaining left and right all the way until the cows came home. There was a lot of kind of tit-for-tat escalation here, wasn't there? Because obviously once Charles yes. had done his on-camera interview, Princess Diana then followed suit, and she did um, her famous, famous interview with Martin Bashir when she said there were three of us in this marriage and it was a bit crowded. Um, so that was in 1995. But the fallout from this was huge. I mean, Charles was, he was, Charles was actually doing very well in the polling in December 1991 before all this whole process all happened. The, bio, the, the first biography, the Morton one, came out in 92. Um, and so then from once this all started, by the time it got to 1996, he had absolutely tanked in the polls. He'd gone down from being somewhere in the 80s, I think, um, in terms of people who thought he would make a good king to plummeting all the way down into the 40s. So he had 40 points knocked off his his, uh, his standing in the opinion polls. And notably, he has never really fully recovered from that. He's never really recovered from it, no. In fact, actually, on that particular metric, that particular way that the polling is put, he's actually, these days, does slightly worse, I think, if anything. He's in the 30s or mid-30s nowadays. Um, but the other, I mean, Diana did really well in terms of public opinion out of this whole process, but there were always questions about what impact the whole thing had on William and Harry. And in fact, there's be, there's a um, a biography by Tina Brown coming out which uh, in which she talks a little bit about uh, how difficult it was for William at school, knowing that all his friends knew about the intimate details of his parents' private life. Yes. But we also have to point out it wasn't just Diana and Charles who were going very public with their complaining and explaining. Andrew and Fergie have done their fair share. Prince Andrew, um, of course, oh gosh, you know what? We'll start back with the less salacious things they've spoken publicly <laughs> about, shall we? Let's start with the early things. I mean, Fergie, we all know, has written several books, and not just her children's books with her talking helicopter, but, you know, tell-all books. And she, long before Meghan and Harry ever sat down with Oprah, she sat down with Oprah, and she revealed some of the challenges of being a part of the royal family. She spoke openly about the fact that she and Andrew they just didn't get enough time together as a couple. They were apart too much. And uh, she, you know, by most measures was complaining and explaining. And why don't you just buck up? You get to live in that palace. But she was being very open about it. Mm. And then Andrew, you know, he he did his own complaining and explaining. But who can forget the most recent complaining and explaining 
the disastrous 2019 interview with BBC Newsnight. So that, I mean, if you were going to look for an example of why <laughs> never explain, never complain can sometimes be a good strategy, <laughs> I think you couldn't find a better one than Andrew's interview. Um, he... This is the thing about the royal family is there are different royals and they come across different, even particularly some people who marry into the royal family and come from normal society. The, the, this doesn't always apply, but the royals can come across if you give them kind of the full limelight, put a camera on them for half an hour or whatever. Uh, sometimes it can kind of show a little bit that they don't live in the world that ordinary people live in. And one just of the litany of extraordinary things about Andrew's interview was that he didn't express any regrets for his friendship with Jeffrey Epstein. In fact, he kind of tried to defend it on the basis that he Epstein had introduced him to some people who he in, whose company he enjoyed. Um, but he also said, it, obviously, very famously, you know, that he could the allegations against him couldn't be true because he had a medical inability to sweat. That he his alibi was that he was uh, in Pizza Express several hours before. You know, at nightclubs open, where he was obviously supposed to have met Virginia Jeffrey, his uh, his uh, Jeffrey Epstein victim, who accused him of abusing her. Um, he was supposed to have met her in a nightclub. His alibi was that he was in Pizza Express hours earlier. Um, so it, it was the de- definition of a car crash interview, I think, wasn't it? Oh my gosh, we could go on and on and on with the things that he was explaining. Please stop explaining, Andrew, <laughs> but please keep explaining. Please keep explaining. We want to hear all of these ridiculous excuses of yours, but also what the heck, what is wrong with you, dude? What is wrong? With- so out of touch. If, if If he had any sense of, you know, self-reflection he would know that he should not have done that interview that is yeah it it was a disastrous interview but i mean i also just want to point out on the lighter end of things a lot of people say you know william and kate they don't complain they don't explain they are our modern royals they are the young generation they're the people that harry and megan should look to as an example because they just don't do those things they don't complain or explain but i want to point out that that's not true. William and Kate have complained and they have explained. They have filed lawsuits. For example, most notably in 2012, when French paparazzi took long lens photos of Kate Middleton sunbathing topless in Provence, uh, the Cambridges sued for 1.5 million euros. And while they eventually won their privacy suit five years later, the payout was less than 10% of what they asked for. But that was definitely a complaint. That wasn't just sitting back and taking it. No, indeed. And it's worth saying that actually it sounds, it does seem at the moment like William might be shaping up to try to abolish uh, Never Complain, Never Explain, if the briefings to British newspapers are anything to go by. Um, William and Kate obviously had a very difficult tour recently of the Caribbean, as we discussed at length on a previous episode. Um, And there were, as William and Kate arrived back in Britain, there were stories in British newspapers suggesting that William was going to launch a kind of Cambridge revolution and do things his way and part of that was going to be moving away from never complain never explain and telling his side of the story a little bit more Um, but it's a strategy that's quite we associate quite a lot with the queen herself Um, now there is one example that sprung to my mind of a time when the queen has sought to directly challenge something that appeared in the media and it's quite an interesting example and i think you can see in what happened why this might have seemed different to other allegations so 
Um, what happened was the Sun published a video footage and a news story um, of the Queen as a child. And she was being shown how to do a Sikhile salute um, by her uncle, um, who would go on to be King Edward VIII um, and then very quickly be thrown out of the royal family or have to abdicate in order to marry American divorcee Wallace Simpson. Now, Edward VIII was widely rumoured, though never definitively confirmed, to be a Nazi sympathiser. And there are suggestions he may even have given uh, leaked intelligence to the Nazis. Um, so the Sun, in their coverage, tried to make clear that they were not suggesting for a minute that Elizabeth herself was uh, a Nazi. She was a, a young child at the time and couldn't possibly have known what she was doing. However, they try, they sort of framed this story as being a uh, as offering new insight into Edward VIII and how close Britain came to actually having a king who sympathised with the Nazis. Um, obviously, it caused a huge storm in Britain, and a lot of people actually got very angry with the son and took the royal family's side. Um, but Buckingham Palace did issue an on-the-record uh, statement in response in which they said that they were hugely disappointed um, that the newspaper had published the footage from the royal family's private collection. Um, and, they, yeah, I mean, you know, they they tried to provide some context in lieu of explaining, but I think the complaint element definitely comes across quite strongly in what they said as well. It does. It does. And honestly, I would complain too if people were publishing photos like that of me as a little girl, not really understanding what was going on. Little kids don't get it. But, but, enough Jack, of us sharing all our evidence about the royals complaining and explaining what we really need to talk about is whether or not the approach to stay silent is better than this complaining and explaining. And we're going to explore that after a brief break. But first, a reminder to all of you out there, if you could take a moment to rate and review us in Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get the show, we would be so grateful. We'll be right back. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. We're back with our exploration of the British monarchy's famous adage, never complain, never explain. And now let's look at some of the times that the firm has stuck by this, uh, this famous saying and whether it worked for them or not. Yes, there are many examples of the firm keeping, you know, their, their lips zipped of not saying anything, even if they felt tempted to. One of the famous examples was um, when photos of the queen were published with her very young children. I mean, this is something we still see in the royal family. Uh, Meghan and Harry have sued over this. The press taking private photos or taking photos of the family in their own home, on their own land or whatnot, taking those photos and deciding these are going to be published. So, yes, this happened. We talk about this happening with Meghan and Harry or with Wilson Kate, but it did happen to the Queen back in the 1960s that the press published private photos of her and her children, and she stayed quiet about it. 
Yeah, so this was the time when Prince Edward was a newborn baby, um, and Philip had taken a he'd taken a photograph on a kind of family camera, and they sent the pictures off to a developer like any other family would. Um, and whoever was developing the pictures took one look at all of this stuff, so you know the Queen members of the royal family, children, and thought, well, I can make a bit of money here, um, and sold it to a, to a magazine called Paris Match, French magazine. So Paris Match ran it all, and then it, it ran in America, and it ran in Britain as well, in the Daily Express. Uh, so a huge sensational story, and the royal family were obviously livid about it and felt betrayed. And I'm sure the person who did this was dealt with in fairly, uh, fairly brutal terms by the company he worked for. Um, but... The Queen was kind of talked through it, you know, do you want to sue? Um, Privacy law probably wasn't as developed in those days as it is now when uh, we have the European Convention on Human Rights as part of British law. But there are, you know, there were, I think there was a couple of approaches they could have taken uh, to try to bring a lawsuit at that time. And the Queen chose not to. Um, so it's difficult to see, you know, did this work out for them or did it not work out for them? I guess on the one hand, you could say, I don't think it happened to her specifically again, um, it, it, beyond the fact that they had to change the way they developed their pictures. Yeah. Do you think they installed their own dark room in the castle? <laughs> they must have done <laughs> that, something. It's like no more dropping off the photos yeah. at, at the drugstore. Yes, no exactly. Yeah. No, no, no more sending the valet out to the local boots. Yeah. Um, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so they obviously changed their system. Um, but I think, I mean... Harry's perspective on all this is that you have to take a moral stand on it. And the Queen, obviously, for me, it feels like she tends to view these things predominantly from a reputational perspective. And the Queen plays the long game. And what she's interested in is her reputation over time, basically. But sometimes I think she plays the long game wrong. And I'd say that a lot of other folks agree that that was especially true when um, Princess Diana was killed in that paparazzi car chase and the queen and the family, they stayed in Scotland in the immediate aftermath of that. And the world wanted to know when is the queen going to address this tragedy? When is she going to speak up about it? Is she going to stay silent forever? Is she never going to complain? Is she never going to explain? And it went on for days and the public was outraged. Yes. And so the royal family did actually, in a sense, give a sort of response, which was that they came back to London. And there was this whole thing at the time about whether they were going to fly the flag at half mast. And the public and the press wanted them to fly the royal standard at half mast at at Buckingham Palace. And there's the thing that the standard only flies at all when the uh, the monarch is in residence and when while she was up in Scotland she wasn't i think they in the end they came up with some kind of a compromise i think they flew the union jack at half mast or something like that um but essentially they did change the way that they approached things but they didn't get drawn into commenting publicly and, and in the end i think it was tony blair who was prime minister at the time who defended them over it and said that this was a family tragedy um affecting them as well as as well as diana's own blood relatives and that they had to put the kind of concerns of the children um, ahead of everything else. Um, but it, this is one of the big things that people do actually remember, you know, uh, one of the big criticisms of the Queen that has lodged in people's minds. So they didn't manage to achieve that whole thing I, as I mentioned before about allowing the tide to simply come back out again without leaving a mark. Like people remember, people do actually concretely remember that as part of Di- the story of Diana's death and its 
mouth to mouth. Yeah, well, knowing the good and the bad of complaining and explaining, what do you think the royal family should be doing moving forward? Do you think they should give more explanations like William supposedly is going to do when he's king? Uh, Do you think that they should apply the queen's logic more and, you know, stay back and, you know, keep your mouth shut? What what do you think, Jack? So I think that they do have to be very careful about getting drawn into an argument because it, it it can definitely elevate the status of some quite trivial stories. Um, really, this is about assessing how uh, powerful and impactful the allegations against them are. So, for example, look at if you look at Meghan and Harry's Oprah interview, there was no way that they could just ignore that. But also, it was very important not to get drawn into a kind of toxic, negative argument with Meghan and Harry across the Atlantic, uh, put, you know, throwing out you know counter allegations or trying to challenge the factual basis of the interview which obviously a lot of the a lot of the newspapers in the media tried to uh, challenge the factual basis of some of the claims made if the royal family had been drawn into that it would have been reputationally toxic for them so on that particular one they, they had to say something but i think they, they couldn't just ignore it but i think not appearing too defensive and not getting into an argument um probably stood them in good stead there i, I would imagine that there were people within the, the uk-based family who were probably quite angry with Harry and Meghan and would happily have set off on them about it. It would have been a terrible idea reputationally for them to do that. On the other hand, um, there are times when the narrative can slip out of your control and you do have to do something to try to to regain control. I mean, we saw um, William and Kate lose control of the narrative of their tour of the Caribbean very recently. And again, it was very important that they didn't get defensive about it or appear to be resentful about the allegations that were being made of them. But I think William tried to do it, tried to respond in a kind of sideways fashion by releasing this big statement he put out at the end of the tour where he said that, it, you know, uh, the Caribbean countries they visited had every right to choose their own future and decide whether to remove the Queen as, as head of state. So there is this kind of middle ground where they can not directly respond to the negative stories about them, but give a kind of address the issue more generally without direct reference to the criticism. Yeah. And I think they have to be very thoughtful about how they do that. It seems that, you know, on the rare occasions we see them give an off-the-cuff response, it can be quite defensive. For example, right after that Oprah interview with Meghan and Harry, uh, at an event, William was asked, frankly, by a journalist, is yours a racist family? And rather than reply with some reflection or, you know, I think now is an important time for all of us to have a conversation about race because there are inequities in the world and our family is having conversations about it. He could have said something like that, but instead he got very defensive and said, no, we're very much not a racist family. And so that was a case where I thought, oh, you're explaining and you're doing it in a defensive way. But uh, yeah, I think any complaining or explaining going forward does have to be with um, a little bit more thought, a little bit more like that statement 
that he put out after the Caribbean tour. I agree. And that's actually a perfect example, Kristen, because I think a couple of days before William said that, Charles was also asked the same question on a visit himself. And he just completely blanked the reporter, said absolutely nothing, which is in some ways probably ruder. However, because he didn't open his mouth, no one remembers. (laughs) Everyone remembers William denying that the royals were a racist family. No one remembers Charles completely stonewalling the journalist who asked the question. So it kind of works, you know, because it doesn't give the media any anything to run with so nothing balloons and becomes bigger uh, the story simply remains as it as it stood but there's a real like brinksmanship to whether or not you think you can survive this storm and come out intact and whether you think that um, actually this will be something that leaves an indelible stain on your reputation for years to come um, and yeah, like you say, I mean, you know, they have to be really careful because if you give a member of the royal family free reign, like they don't actually live in the same world that we live in and they don't necessarily <laughs> understand how all of their comments are going to be received and they are perfectly capable, pretty much all of them, of putting a foot in their mouth and saying something they shouldn't, um, at which point, you know, anything that comes straight from the mouth of a member of the royal family is going to have so much, such, such more status, such a higher status than, yeah, kind of like stuff that gets thrown at them on social media or source quotes in newspapers or whatever it might be. Wow. All of you out there listening, tell us, what do you think the royals should do in this new era going forward? Should they complain a little bit more, explain a little bit more? Should they be like the queen and try to keep a stiff upper lip? Tweet us at Jack underscore Royston and at Kristen Meinzer. We always love to hear from all of you out there. So yeah, let us know how you feel about it. And that's it for this episode of The Royal Report. Be sure to join us every other week when we visit the latest royal headlines, embark on some royal deep dives, and riff on all things royal. Until next time, I'm Kristen Meinzer. And I'm Jack Royston. Thank you so much for listening, everyone. And a curtsy to you all. (laughs) 